Welcome to Fast Lane with Sarah Jane, a podcast for women who are on the move, managing life and family. Your host, Sarah Jane, is building a tribe and talking about the things that affect the daily lives of moms. You can expect real conversations about managing chaos, finding ways to take care of mind and body, and stepping outside your comfort zone on the way to living your best life. Hold on for a wild ride. Now, let's get started. So today I'm excited because, well, I'm usually always excited to talk to new people, but today I'm talking to Rose Torero, and I had met Rose roughly a year ago, and I was very fascinated by her because she did did a different job than anyone I had ever spoken to before. So first of all, Rose, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, yeah, thank you for inviting me. And please tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. So um, it's really interesting. I don't know. I never know how to answer when people say to tell them about myself because I'm like, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> but we just want to, we want to lay the, fr- uh, the framework of like who you are today. So you go as right. far back as, as you want. <laughs> Okay. Pardon my cold. All right. So I will start with currently right now. I am, I've been married for three years. I'm a mom to an 11 year, uh, not 11 year old. Oh my word. An 11 month old. He probably thinks he's 11 years old. The kid's been walking for over a month already. He's already saying his first words like crazy, crazy child. So yeah, proud mom, happily married. I live in the Dominican Republic. I have been living here for close to five years now. And I've been living overseas out of the United States for over six years. Before the DR, I was in Guatemala. That kind of brings us to the present of who I am today. But how I got here was just, I grew up in a large family. We would do a lot of traveling to Central America during the winters as a family, um, especially to do like missions work and come alongside churches and organizations who are already in Mexico and Guatemala. So I was introduced to Latin America and learned the Spanish language as a kid, just hands-on. That's how I got into the international field. And I've been, yeah, like I said, overseas for over six years now. So, yeah. Cool. And what, um, when you lived in Guatemala, what, what did you do? So in Guatemala, I actually worked with a Widows and Orphans Helps Ministry. Um, I was there... My technical title was kind of an intern for the first couple of months, but then I was just on staff doing a whole bunch of different stuff. I was an administrative assistant. My main job was also to be part of like the sponsorship program. I was basically one of the sponsorship social workers. So I would do house calls with my local coworkers and um, see how families were doing, see how the kids in our sponsorship program were doing, make sure everything they had was there and um, just write reports and updates to the sponsors of how the family was, make sure that their health was good, their education, all that stuff, all the good stuff. And then I also would help with team coordination. So we would have team trips or like groups come from the United States through churches or businesses and other just people, sometimes family groups would come down and they would help us with build projects. So we would make homes for widows. And we would also install bathrooms with running water, which was very rare in the mountains where I worked in. And we would do water filter programs. And also uh, the organization had a shoe factory. So we would do a lot of like handout shoes and any donated clothes that would come. So yeah, so like my two biggest things were sponsorship, social worker, and um, team trip coordinator. 
So did you get involved in this through after doing all your missions? Is that how you got involved in this or was this something else? Yeah, this is actually the founder of this organization is the one who had gotten my dad back in 1998 into missions in Guatemala in the beginning. So he was like a part of the family, the organization I was with in 2014. Yeah. So then when you moved to the Dominican, what did you uh, start doing then? Right. So through a connection actually from that organization, I heard about a program growing up in the Dominican Republic that the the directors still hadn't moved down, but they were a part of a larger international organization that was working specifically with minors coming out of human trafficking and sexual exploitation. And um, this was the first project that they were setting up in the Western Hemisphere. And the Dominican Republic at the time was one of the top five worst statistically in the Western Hemisphere for trafficking, especially trafficking in minors. So they decided to set up the program here. And they needed someone to come along as a director's assistant. So I had a hand in setting up the program from the ground up. What exactly, as a director's assistant, what exactly was your day-to-day operations? (laughs) Oh, man. A day was like a week. A week was like a month. And a month was like a year. (laughs) Like, I, I could probably write a series of books from the two years that I was specifically in that role from 2015 through 2017. And the first couple of months, it was a lot of translating. So translating documents, protocols, procedures, getting our home registered, actually finding the house, creating contracts, hiring lawyers, all of that stuff. My, my bosses, my directors didn't speak Spanish. So I was their, I was their in-between person who was involved from every, in everything. So meeting with government officials, meeting with local people, meeting with churches and organizations to see like for staff recruitment who would come want to come on board, um, creating staff training, doing staff training, staff supervision. And when we had the girls helping set up a learning center, we had a teacher who was really great at that, but helping to form the curriculum, getting resources for the curriculum. And then also a lot of administrative work. We had a head of finances, actually one of the two directors was the head of finances, but just like making sure that our staff was trained in how to enter receipts and how to track the money. So everything was kept above board because as a non-government organization, an NGO, everything had to be kept clean and above board so we could have the best ratings possible. So I just everything, everything that goes into running, starting and maintaining and running an organization, I had a hand in. Wore many, many hats, worked many, many long days and was very involved. I would, I mean, I, I got dubbed warden of the house because um, when the girls would get into trouble with the house parents, they would send them to me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what I did, but basically anything that goes into into an organization, I had a heart in. So yeah. So what was the average age of the people that you were saving, really? Yeah, yeah. So we specifically, this organization worked only with minors. We could have worked with as many adults as we wanted to, but there was no minor program in the country at the time specifically for trafficking and sexual exploitation. The Dominican Republic just tends to throw those kids in with any of their other like foster care government homes and not have a specific program for minors. So we were the only one of our kind at the time. And we specifically said we would work with 11 to 17 year olds, but we I think had a 10 year old at one point who turned 11 while she was in our care. Now it wasn't that we wouldn't take kids younger than that, 
It's just, just that when they're younger than adolescents, the dynamics are a little bit different. And because of the house capacity that we had for the number of kids that we could have in our care, we knew another organization who was working with more of the little young kids and we were able to kind of partner with their staff and get them some training for if they did get a trauma um, and abuse victim, specifically sexual trafficking victim, how to, what kind of attention to give them. But we didn't really see younger kids at that point in time. We, it was 11 to 17. It was the age range we worked with. And how many people are you working with at a time? How many are you having to find homes for? Our house had the capacity, we said for 16 but we figured out pretty quickly just with dynamics, we didn't like to go over eight to 10. And at a time, our sweet spot was about six. But this was any anywhere from the point in time of they would be with us for five days up to like six months. Or one girl was actually with us for a whole year and a half, her and her son, um, because her mom's rights got revoked. And so she had to just stay with us until she aged out basically and we we got her education and a job and all of that stuff but she was the one who was with us the longest the others like it, what we would try to do is find family to place them back with and then our social workers would do follow-up they would do some family education community awareness and education and do follow-up with the girls once they got placed back home some of it was also out of our hands because the girls were mandated into our care by the government so we were given like custody like actual custody of them so once the government or the judge over their case decided that per their social workers working with our social workers that the home was safe enough whether or not we recommended it they would send the girl back to her home but we would do the follow-up care okay so for the lay person who does not know as much about it as you do when when you are rescuing people, are they have they been abducted or has their family sold them into this? What what's usually goes on there? Yeah, so we we see every kind of case. The girl specifically I was talking about who was with us for a year and a half. It was her mom who we we have a term called pimping her out. So basically, instead of having like a street pimp, her mom would be the one looking for clients for her and 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 selling her for sex. So that's uh, so she was actually in a government home twice before coming to our care permanently and why and one of the reasons she was sent to a government home was because she got pregnant um so that's why when she got into was in our care she was uh 15 with a two with a two-year-old son when they came in when she came into our care so that was her case specifically and then we've had others who were literally just like two friends you know, 15, 16 year old, maybe um, they made a, a new for, hey, this cool guy in the neighborhood. It's like, hey, you're kind of wanting to like push the limits a little bit. You want to come look at some apartments with me. Maybe your parents will let you like come over and party one weekend, wake up the next morning in a hotel, no clue where they're at because they were drugged or whatever and taken there. That, that was an example of girls who were only in our care for about a week or so. And we were able to place them back with their parents and just to follow up because their parents actually, they did actually come from a good home. They were just kind of kids pushing a limit. Or we had gang members at one point had two girls from opposing gang members in our house who were like the gang prostitutes. We had girls who were just like orphaned on the street, just being pimped out. Sometimes they had someone specifically that they were attached to. Sometimes it was just themselves selling their body for sex. The factor that makes it really difficult here in the Dominican Republic is that prostitution is still legal. Adult prostitution is legal. So there's actually prostitution houses. 
but if or the people running the house are, are not supposed to employ minors. So anybody who comes, the Dominican Republic is a big tourist destination. So unfortunately, I mean, just kind of a little education on trafficking, wherever there's tourism, there's trafficking. People come internationally looking for sex oftentimes. Not everybody does, but it, the rates are high in the tourism hotspots. So even though it's illegal to pay a minor for sex, there's minors pimping themselves out or being pimped out because people just don't ask their age. So we had a whole, we just had a whole bunch of cases like that where, yeah, anywhere from orphaned, abandoned parents selling them, actually just having kind of that, the movie trafficking case scenario to gangs, to any kind of way you can imagine. So when they usually, when you're working with them, do they want to get out of it or some of them want to not get your help? So this is the difference we see here in the Dominican Republic, and I think especially in the Western Hemisphere, between minors and adults. The organizations that I personally know and am connected with who work with adults, they specifically often have a like a requirement that the adults who come into their, let's say, like job training and aftercare program, they have to want to come in because if they want to come in, they will stay longer and go through the program more dedicatedly. Whereas with minors, it's not their choice. So we were working with minors who had the government mandated them into our care. And I would say 85 to 90% of them did not want to be in there, especially the first week that they were with us. So that was one of the first things in our program and in teaching our house parents was how to work with girl, a new girl that comes in. She, I mean, it would disrupt the dynamic of the house because we'd have girls in there who were there for like a month or two and going through our learning center program, doing really good, getting our therapy, um, going through like we would have tutoring and Bible studies, just all kinds of stuff in the learning center. We'd have English tutoring. We'd have jewelry making. We'd have math tutoring. So had some job skills, life skills, uh, like teaching what is your self-worth, who is your identity in God and all those things. And then when a new girl comes in, she disrupts the whole system. So a lot of our training was how to deal with the new dynamic. So we saw it took a girl about 10 days, 10 to 12 days before she really wanted to be there. Wow. So were you, I don't, I guess it's hard for me to even phrase this because I've never asked anyone this question. Were you out there doing like the rescues and getting like, intel on like where to get people or are you just waiting for people to come to you you know at one point in time i was actually gonna be one of the like of one of the rescue team doing especially surveillance and intelligence work and i i like i was known by the government department we worked with um i knew our agents and all of that stuff um but it ended up being better that I stayed back because I worked in the office so much and I did so much with our staff training and with the girls that it wouldn't have necessarily been prudent if I would have been out on the streets as well. Because, I mean, some of the girls, let's say, leave our care, they have, they'll go back to their contacts and stuff. Our social workers would do our best to follow up, but you can only do so much, especially if a girl lives like five hours away or three hours away. And you can only work as much as the family allows you to work with them too. Like we are, we can't impose ourselves once they're out of our care to a certain point. So I ended up mostly working in the aftercare. So we had three phases, rescue, reintegr- or 
sorry, rescue, restoration, and reintegration. So I worked mostly in the restoration and reintegration part, so the safe home and then the social working part. So are most of the gals that you had from the Dominican or are they from all over? We had mostly Dominicans and we had a few Haitians as well because we share an island with Haiti. So there's actually a lot of Haitian trafficking. And if we would have been working with adults at the time, even just in the five years since I've been here, we've seen a big increase in Venezuelans, but those are mostly adults and not minors. So we did Dominicans and Haitians. So you said that mostly when there's tourism, there's trafficking. And I'm not thinking that you're going to have stats or you're going to be able to rattle anything like that off. But what are you looking at like in North Dakota? Honestly, at this point in time, I don't know. I know that when the oil boom was there, which you would as a native would know a lot better than I would. I haven't lived in North Dakota for, you know, five, six years. Mm -hmm. There was a lot going on because of transient workers. So there's tourism is a factor and transient workers is another factor. We actually just recently, our team got the trafficking in persons report for this past year, which I'm going to send to you as a resource. And uh, in there, it gives a great synopsis about every country. Like they have the tier one, tier two, tier three, tier one would be countries that are making the best effort the minimum effort like required with laws and and prosecuting and and victim services um, to be making an effort against trafficking. Tier two would be the ones who aren't up to par but are making an effort and getting there. Tier two watch list is ones that have been on the tier two list but maybe haven't done as much since the previous reporting year. And then tier three are countries that just literally aren't making an effort. And there still are some that just are not making an effort? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. The United States, uh, or or not just the United States, but every country in trafficking and persons report, the TIP uh, report, has um, a synopsis. Um, And it's about a 500-page document, but you can easily scroll through and see which country you want to read up on. And I, I screenshot stats on the United States, not necessarily in every state, but on the United States as a whole. And it talks about what victims would be mostly coming into the United States or trafficked into the United States and which are trafficked out of the United States and um, kind of where they would be located and how they'd be pinged. So I'll, I'll send you the document and I'll, I'll just kind of read a synopsis from that screenshot as well. Um, if you can just give me a second, I'll pull it up. Um, so this is called a trafficking profile. They do this for every country. This gives you the profile of your country and kind of what trafficking looks like. So the trafficking profile for United States in the 2020 Trafficking in Persons Report is that for the past five years, human traffickers exploit domestic and foreign national victims in the United States, and traffickers exploit victims from the United States abroad. Cases have been reported in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Traffickers compel victims to engage in commercial sex and to work in both legal and illicit industries and sectors, including in hospitals, Fatality. So this would be like cleaning services, traveling sales crews, agriculture. So you see a lot of migrant workers, janitorial services, construction, landscaping, restaurants, factories, care for persons with disabilities, salon services, massage parlors, retail, fairs and carnivals, peddling and begging, drug smuggling and distribution, religious institutions, Childcare and domestic work. 
individuals who enter the United States with and without legal status have been identified as trafficking victims. Victims originate from almost every region of the world, but the top three countries of our origin federally identified victims in 2019 were from the United States, Mexico, and Honduras. Individuals in the United States vulnerable to human trafficking include children in the child welfare and juvenile justice system, including foster care, runaway and homeless youth, unaccompanied foreign national children without lawful immigration status, individuals seeking asylum, American Indians and Alaska Natives, particularly women and girls, individuals with substance use issues, migrant laborers, including undocumented workers and participants in visa programs for temporary workers, foreign national domestic workers and diplomatic households, persons with limited English proficiency, persons with disabilities, LGBTI individuals, and victims of intimate partner violence or domestic violence. Advocates reported a growing recognition of trauma bonding in human trafficking cases, which occurs when a trafficker uses rewards and punishments in cycles of abuse to foster a powerful emotional connection with the victim. Some U.S. citizens engage in child sex tourism in foreign countries. So that's just a synopsis of the United States, not necessarily just of North Dakota, but of the United States. So all of those like points that they have in the trafficking profile are where you can see human trafficking. And if you think geographically, usually it's in the largest cities of the United States and where there's the most transient activity. Okay. So like, like the Super Bowl, that's a pretty hot spot, pretty big hot spot, yes. correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Definitely. That's like the big, one of the biggest events of the year. We're, we're talking about, this is a lot for me to digest. I feel like I've talked to a lot of people that kind of get me stumbled on my words because I'm thinking what like how does this even happen but yeah so and not a laughing matter like I'm not laughing at the matter right I'm laughing because like of myself but oh yeah I get it when it has when there's so many children there's a ridiculous amount of children that go missing in the United States a year right so there's amber alerts and whatever else are though a majority of those children you think going into something like this this would say this would be from my not necessarily pulling from any statistics or official documentation so much as just connections with organizations and people who work with work in the United States. I would say the vast majority, upwards of seventy five percent or more in my in my evaluation would definitely be somehow related to human trafficking. Now human trafficking can also be we see a lot of online. So like online child pornography would be a huge, huge reason for missing children in the United States. And also, I mean, there's also child labor, um, which isn't as much talked about when we talk about human trafficking, but that is a huge part of human trafficking as well is forced labor as well as sexual exploitation. Wow. So what is like the average mom like me and how, what are some tips that you can give me or different things that you can say to people on how they can be more diligent? Because I mean, I'm not saying I'm a bad parent. I think I'm, I'm not yeah. a helicopter parent, but I'm very aware yeah. of what my children are doing. But when you and I had spoke before, you had said a few mm-hmm. things like, like, you know, there's a few things that you said that made me think like, oh my gosh, you know, sometimes your kid is going to go grab a snack at a gas station, but technically you yeah. really should never leave your kid alone in spaces like this. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> something I feel like I still do as a habit is 
just anytime we're in a group setting, I always know where every single individual is. So you want to particularly know where your kids are, especially your minor children. Um, you know, I mean, once they're, once they're over the age of 16, this is a hard thing as a parent. You have to know you've raised your kids well to a point where you can trust them and give them independence because knowing all of these scary things out in the world, you want to kind of like clamp down, like you're never leaving the house without me or <laughs> like you're never going to any high school function ever. I don't care if it's called a party or not, you know, all of those things. So you have to, I, I think the biggest thing we can give our kids is to give them awareness. Um, a practical tool would be like self-defense um, classes of some kind or another, um, just to give themselves some street smarts. Another thing that I say for parents is have these conversations with your kids as you're raising them. Like I only have an 11 month old, but I already know I'm probably going to scar my kids from talking about sex with them from a very young age. Because if you talk about these things as if it's a normal topic of conversation in your household, you can be the one giving them this information in the way, in the amounts that you know they can handle, and it's not coming from someone else. But I do think we have a tendency to avoid the scary things until we think they're old enough, and by then, they've already heard from someone else about it. So have the conversations with your kids. Talk about sex. Talk about like identity and I mean, have a relationship with their kids so they know that they're loved and they're secure. Because if you look at, I mean, the statistics speak to it loudly. The vast majority of trafficking victims are people who are like displaced, not at their homes. So you're talking about migrants and internationals or the foster care system and runaway kids. Like when you're talking about children, there's runaways and people and kids who do not have solid family homes, as well as substance abuse. The best thing we can do is create a safe environment for our kids, but also be the ones talking to them about these things so they're aware. So yeah, and like when you're out in public, like I know people talk about um, like the leash with little kids, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like in the grocery aisle. Oh my goodness, the mom had a leash on her kid because her kid would just run away and not listen to her. I have a tendency to think, well, yeah, you know, like obviously like, teach your kids to listen to you. But it's actually not a bad idea to have like one of those backpack leashes or wrist leashes where and that so that they're always by your side because there's way too many stories nowadays with kids like you just turn your back for a second and they're gone. Um, but also being aware of like just when you're out and about, I'm not talking about being paranoid, but be aware of are you seeing the same person repeatedly in the same aisle as you? Are you seeing a strange vehicle in your neighborhood? Just to be aware and to know your surroundings um, is a huge thing. So do you think, as far as social media, do you think that parents should not be posting certain things on social media of their children? Um, there's, I mean, that ab absolutely is up to the parent. I definitely say use caution when using social media. Number one, remove the location tags from your pictures. So when you, in your camera app on your phone, make sure location tags are always turned off. Whenever you post it to social media and you have your kids in the picture, as much as possible, keep the location off because it's just a way for someone to track what your normal habits are. The other way, there's examples that you can find of how to take pictures of your, especially your little kids, to keep them more close up and not as much of a broad showing the whole room. 
because when this is back to talking about online child pornography, people can actually take your kids' pictures. And if it's a broad picture, they can copy and paste adult content into that picture using your minor child that you don't want happening with your child. So keeping stuff like up close, mostly face shots, not as much full body shots or mostly waist up shots, definitely no like naked shots. I know it's so cute seeing a baby in a bathtub, but like just avoid posting that stuff and also keeping it like more centered and not that broad groom shot, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So when, since you became a parent, that really, obviously you have to be able to shut this off when you go home. And I'm, I'm assuming there's nights that you were laying in bed and you couldn't shut your mind off, but at some point, I mean, you do have to function outside of work, but when you became a parent, did, did you start thinking about things way differently? Yeah. So this is actually, this is, I mean, where, where I'm at right now, before like we started a conversation, I just told you where I'm at right now is actually very different from a year ago. A lot of it has been due to COVID-19. We were actually stuck in the States for four months because my husband had his naturalization interview to become an American citizen. And then the Dominican Republic completely shut down all flights, all borders within 36 hours. (laughs) He got up there. So we were stuck in the States for four months and everything here got shut down. Like People think the United States has been crazy. It's been ridiculous down here. It's been like strictly mandated curfew. Our friends weren't leaving their homes for two weeks at a time, except one person per household would go to the grocery store once a week, just stuff like that. <laughs> so things are shut down. Yeah. And so while we were up there, we were, I mean, we'd already been talking about like for the first couple months, I actually took a big step back just to spend time with my baby, you know, make sure that I get him off to a good start. And then a couple other details, like as far as my directors, they had to move back to Australia because of an accident that happened here. Just a lot of crazy stuff that happened at the same time to the point that when we came back, we actually, I made a decision to take a step back for right now. I'm not, I mean, I'm doing some work from home, but I'm not as much involved in person because I had to really evaluate as much as I want to be active and in the action as much as I used to be. I do have a child who needs my time and attention and I'm the best person to give it to him, me and his father. And bringing so many things home with me was, I mean, it just takes away from, from what he needs from me. Um, So, I mean, again, talking about how to be a parent to your child and through just these crazy statistics, I want to go back. I don't know when exactly. I mean, we want to have a couple more kids, you know, so it might be a couple of years, but I had to make that decision that for the health of my family and for my child's sake, I'm actually, I've taken a step back for now as far as an active role and doing more consulting work. So it was, I mean, it it was a tough decision. It wasn't anything I took lightly, but I needed to do that. Like my family has to come first as much as there's so many other needs. There's so many people that need help. It's hard you do need to put your family first. And so I had to take that role. So that's how, I mean, that's how it applied to my life. (laughs) It might not apply the same way to somebody else who's in this, in the same situation, but that's how it applied to my life because I can't put on my child what I have on me. Right. So when you do, so saying that you probably feel the same way about, you don't want to bring that home and put it on your husband. So how do you Mm -hmm. connect from, because I know at one time you had said that, 
you could be called at any hour of the night and you were kind of go, go, go at all hours. How can you go home and live a normal life and know all that's going on? How do you disconnect? I think a big part, especially for my husband and me, was keeping him involved in everything that was going on. Even though what he's doing in the organization and ministry he does is completely different. Like he works in sports ministry and he does, he works with coaches and athletes in the baseball world here. So a very different dynamic, but just like he was the person I would go home to and cry on his shoulder. I didn't try to keep anything away from him, if that makes sense. So there's, I mean, there's obviously those protocols and procedures about not, you know, not sharing personal information, all right. that stuff. We as an organization always made an understanding that your spouse is not included in that. And actually a lot of government like organizations and bureaus and departments, it's the same thing. Like your spouse is an exception because you can't have a healthy relationship if you can't share what it is that you're struggling with and going through. So, so yeah, that was, uh, for us, it was, he was my vomit bag <laughs> and it worked because he's a great listener and he would help me. He would more than anything else, just being able to tell him these things, he would be the one to help me distance myself and be like, look, you can't take it personally if this girl isn't responding to the, to what you want to offer her the way that you know is best for her. She has to make that decision. And it's not because you're doing something wrong. You know, just stuff like that. Having someone to bounce it off and he knows me better than anybody else. Keeping an open conversation about it. And that's always been the dynamics of our relationship. Like we don't keep any secrets from each other. No matter how hard it is, we always talk about everything. So that was, I think that was the best, the best thing that we did and could have done and and will always do is get it out in the open, be done with it. And then, okay, it's talked about. This is also actually practice we do in, um, in therapy. Talk about it think through it and then realize, okay, just thinking through it now and talking about it right now doesn't fix anything right now. So for the next 24 hours, don't go back until you are back at work and can actually do something about it. So take the weekend off mentally, give yourself a break. So then I have a plethora of other questions. So we'll have to do a round two, I think. Um, on an ending note, what can the yeah. average person do to help in this industry? Yeah. So uh, again, like I, <laughs> I say, I preach awareness, awareness, awareness around awareness, get involved, like find and get involved with local organizations in and around where you are and in your state who are working in this organization or industry and, in, you know, in, the, in anti-trafficking efforts. And even if it's like the foster care system, because that's a huge point in the United States, get involved in an organization that is making a difference where you're at. Now, it might not be in your town, but it could easily be, it should be in your state. All 50 states have organizations doing things. It could be crisis pregnancy centers. It could be Teen Challenge, which works with substance abuse stuff. It could be many things because a lot of these organizations have connections to human trafficking because of seeing the dynamics. And so people coming through their programs, some of them have been affected by it. So their staff has to have training how to help with it. Or there's organizations specifically working with trafficking. So get involved, become aware and get involved. Become aware of your town. It's scary, but start digging to the statistics and then see who's doing something about it and, and get involved with them. Sometimes it is literally just attending a banquet and writing a check. 
but that goes a long way from the receiving end. I, I mean, like people like, Oh, you can't just throw money at it. No, you can't just throw money at it, but throw money at an organization who's doing something about it because it will help them do something more. If you physically can't get involved, ask about volunteer opportunities or, I mean, become a foster parent. Like there's just, there's so many things. So find out what you can do. And even if it is just becoming a support person, there's not enough people who are supporting these organizations. So become a support person. Awesome. Well, good. Well, thank you for all of that interesting information. I mean, I think a lot of, (laughs) this is a topic people don't like to talk about. They just, you know, if you don't talk about it, it doesn't exist, right? Yeah, definitely. Like I said, it's it's a scary topic. It's a scary subject of conversation, but it's very real. Just in the five years that I've been involved with it, I've seen it grow even more than before. So, I mean, like I can tell you stories of just hearing people recently in the United States. There were two, two very random stories of people in, in like the plain and conservative communities who were abducted, not even at risk. Like, all you know, like we have risk factors of, oh, they're they're in a one-parent home or, or they're, you know, in an unstable school situation, all that stuff. Not even that. Just people driving home from work probably ran into the wrong person at, at the drugstore or something. Abductions and all those things. And it's like, it's becoming very real, very in your face, and you have to be doing something about it so that you know how to help. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing your knowledge about it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I know, I always say I know a lot more about what's going on in the Dominican Republic about this than the United States, but the facts are, are the way you apply the solution is still the same. So, yeah. <laughs> I like it. All right. Well, thank you for chatting with me today and we will chat again. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Anytime. Hopefully next time I won't have a cold. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated.